Thank you all for coming. I know we changed the time. Uh, it was to accommodate students and faculty who taught until just before 5, so I thank you especially for sticking around and to you students for coming. A chair lecture is an important event in the life of an academic institution. Scholarship can be a lonely endeavor, just you and your computer day after day after day. Here at Virginia, actually, I think we're quite lucky. We have a vibrant intellectual community of students and faculty together. We present our work in workshops. We discuss it in the hallway with colleagues. We teach it to our students. We share it with our students in brown bag lunches. But there are still too few opportunities to celebrate what we do. And what we do should be celebrated, the creation of knowledge, the fostering of ideas, the improvement of the legal system and of legal education. And so the chair lecture is one of those moments of celebration. It's a signal moment in the life cycle of a career and in the life of a law school. That allows for celebration. It marks that celebration in a true scholarly way with a presentation of scholarly work uh, and in a place that values both scholarly excellence and true community, the chair lecture is an ideal event that melds both of those values and celebrates the successes of our own. So this is a moment to reflect on two people, sometimes more, but today two, the chair's namesake and the chair's recipient. So in this case, it allows us, this isn't always true, but in this case, it allows us to commemorate two members of our faculty, one past and one present. The past member of the faculty is T. Munford Boyd, the name of this chair. He was on the law school faculty from 1947 to 1970, and I'm sure there are some of you in the audience who remember him. He was a double who. He graduated in 1920 and 1923, respect, uh, uh, Okay, anyway, you all know what I mean, uh, but the word is not in my head at the moment. Uh, he uh, was blinded at the age of three by scarlet fever, and after he graduated, he had trouble finding a law firm that would hire him, and he eventually said, uh, uh, and he was a really good law student and really, really smart, as you'll hear in a minute, uh, and he decided to set up his own legal practice. During World War II, he worked for the federal government uh, in the War Production Board, and then he worked for a Richmond law firm for a few years after that before joining our faculty in 1947. He continued a back and forth from UVA Law School into uh, service, uh, public service in the government during the Korean War. He also served as special counsel to the Virginia Code Commission uh, and was a consultant on the revision of procedural statutes in the 1970s. He was one of the earliest recipients of the Thomas Jefferson Award here at the university in 1957, which is the university's highest honor for a faculty member. He was also a beloved and legendary teacher. Colleagues joked that his greatest handicap as a lawyer was that he knew more Virginia procedure than the judges before whom he appeared. Scholarly excellence, a legendary teacher, a vast array of knowledge, service to others, a wellspring of wisdom and empathy, which is also a description of T. Munford Boyd. These are all a good start for a description of the person who now, and very appropriately, holds the T. Munford Boyd chair, J. Holt Verkirke, or RIP. And I will call him RIP. I can't seem to do otherwise. RIP earned a BA from Loyola College and an MPhil in economics and a JD from Yale University. He joined the UVA Law School faculty in 1991 after clerking for Judge Ralph K. Winter, Jr. of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New Haven. That means that this marks his 25th year 
on the faculty. 25 years of being an integral part of this community, both on his own and with his family, his wife Tracy, who is here today, and his grown children, Eric, Therese, and Hans. Yes, he has grown children. I know that looks impossible. Uh, he and Tracy started early. RIP directs our program for employment and labor law uh, studies, and his research focuses on many different aspects of employment and labor law, from employment discrimination to employment contracts, from vicarious liability to the economics of discrimination, and to contract theory. Across all those fields, Rip has brought his economic training to bear on important questions of legal doctrine, legal administration, and public policy. He combines his theoretical sophistication and keen insights with attention to how the real world works. And I'll just give you two brief examples. Recently, responding to arguments of Professors Richard Epstein and Gail Herriot on the effects of legal regulation on the availability of employment in an article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, Rip counted their arguments on three very different levels with three very different kinds of arguments within economic theory itself, so within the terms of the debate uh, that Epstein and Herriot established, by challenging the efficiency imperative with alternative values outside of efficiency, and also by discussing the empirical realities of the job market. In another recent article, Legal Ignorance and Information Forcing Rules in the William & Mary Law Review, Rip explores the common idea that the appropriate response to legal ignorance, uh, and especially the information asymmetries between relatively ignorant consumers and relatively sophisticated commercial actors, is regulation that forces the sophisticated to disclose information to the less sophisticated. Rip joins the skeptics who claim that this, quote, legal information forcing objective often remains unrealized because people routinely sign contracts without reading and understanding their terms. But Rip is not only skeptic, he's also optimist. So he looks for a silver lining, and he actually finds several. He concludes first that not everyone fails to read, and even if an individual might, those he calls avid comparison shoppers probably do read, as well as reviewers of particular products or services and consumer advocates who can help consumers choose. In addition, such written terms may promote ex post clarity and thereby reduce the costs of resolving disputes. And finally, exculpatory clauses allow parties to contract out of the comparatively expensive legal system of dispute resolution in favor of a regime governed by informal social norms. So once again, in this article, one can see Rip dancing between the abstract and the pragmatic, the theoretical and the very human, with a payoff that offers new insights into legal truisms that had previously engendered either wholesale embrace or outright rejection. I'm eager to hear Rip's thoughts on vicarious liability, truthfully, where he promises once again to tack back and forth between the concerns of workers and those of employers, between the theory underlying the doctrine and its real world consequences. Rip is not only a scholar, but as I know all of you, especially those of you on this half of the room, know he is a deeply committed teacher. Even at a law school that prides itself on excellent teaching uh, and whose faculty are incredibly committed to our students, Rip stands out. He is not content to follow established methods simply because they are established methods. He takes pedagogy seriously. He has studied it. He has improved upon it. He has thought deeply about it. Rip is a pioneer in the use of technology to support legal education, and he was selected as an inaugural member of the University Academy of Teaching 
as well as a recipient of the All University Teaching Award here at UVA. In 2012, he received a hybrid challenge grant for technology-enhanced teaching to transform his first-year contracts class using the flipped classroom model of instruction. He's also the author of a three-volume open source contracts law casebook, and he's recently begun an empirical study of law school teaching practices and how those methods affect student experiences and outcomes. And I know that it is so important to him, and he is very touched, maybe he'll say this himself, by having so many students here today as well as his colleagues. Rip's generosity, as those of you on this side of the room know, extends well beyond his students. Rip is an assiduous reader. He always asks key questions at workshops. He throws himself into any project and any decanal request, she says hopefully, uh, any opportunity to serve his colleagues in the law school or beyond. Uh, he is currently, in fact, chairing the University Committee on Information Technology. Speaking of RIP's service brings to mind my first experience of RIP chairing a committee. That was the entry-level hiring committee the year my husband Rich Schrager and I were on the teaching market. And I am so delighted that RIP's is the first chair lecture I have the pleasure of introducing, for I can say with some confidence that I would not be standing here today if RIP had not been the chair of that committee. He was the ideal ambassador of the law school, that unique combination of rigor and warmth, of probing inquiry and generosity of spirit. He has represented the law school's highest ideals since the day I met him, and I am so proud to celebrate him today. Rip. I need to make some adjustments to my height and my loud voice. Um, Thank you, Risa, for that beautiful introduction. Uh, I think, actually, I'd like to stop right here. Anything that I say from here on out is going to be uh, bring us down from where we were. Um, but I also want to thank you for your friendship. I think it's one of the most important things to me at this institution is that we as colleagues have deep and abiding friendships with one another, and I count yours as one of the most valued that I have. Um, I'd also like to thank the donors, uh, generous donors behind the T. Munford Boyd Chair, uh, our former dean, um, uh, John, uh, sorry, our former dean um, uh, told told me that um, that uh, his nickname was Money, um, which you didn't mention, but um, strikes me as maybe appropriate. Um, there's no money attached to the chair, but I, I'm certainly happy to have uh, a, such a, a pleasant uh, person and such a and actually it was lovely to learn about him. Um, the um, other thanks I want to offer are to uh, family, um, my wife Tracy who's here, uh, friends, colleagues, and students for taking the time out of your afternoon to be here. Um, I hope that I will have at least a few things to say to you that will um, enlighten you or probably not amuse you. I was going to go for, for uh, humor, but I decided that substance was probably better in these situations. Um, so. Uh, my topic is uh, both familiar and a little bit obscure. Um, it's familiar because every 1L student studying torts inevitably encounters respondeat superior doctrine. Their first exposure is often to read the story of Seaman Lane, who sank the dry dock and, cap and capsized a ship pictured above me here, 
um, in Ira S. Bushy against the United States. And I'll have more to say about that case in a little bit. Um, countless other legal rules, though, also hold businesses responsible for the wrongdoing of their employees. Um, think of civil rights statutes, environmental laws, corporate criminal law, and um, whistleblowing statutes, among many others. But vicarious liability law has also become somewhat obscure. The intricate details of when and why employers are held vicariously liable currently don't get much attention, either in the classroom or from legal scholars. Agency law, which was once a required course at most law schools, is now merely an elective. And in the past few decades, legal academics haven't written very often about the subject. I hope to take a small step today to remedy this neglect. I'll begin by clarifying the doctrinal structure of vicarious liability law. I'll focus on the relationship between respondeat superior doctrine and the closely related legal theories of negligent hiring, supervision, and retention. I'll also explain the intuitive appeal and broad influence of a cost internalization norm, an approach that has shaped judicial attitudes towards vicarious liability during most of the past century. Next, I'll challenge this norm. My analysis focuses on the problem of matching workers to jobs. Imposing vicarious liability for employee torts uh, sometimes improves match quality. But it also can generate excessive screening and cause inefficient employee turnover, which I call employee churning. Existing doctrine both succeeds and sometimes fails to mitigate these perverse effects. I'll describe several legal rules <clears throat> that promote better employee matching. But I'll also argue that courts overvalue the precaution of discharge, firing risky employees, and they ignore the danger of employee churning. I'll conclude with some tentative suggestions for reform. Let's start with the basic structure of vicarious liability doctrine. These legal rules apply when one person, often a corporate employer, employs another person, an employee. And that person harms a victim. That victim then sues the employer to recover damages. This employee has committed either a negligent or an intentional wrong. We need to know when the law will choose to impute that wrongdoing to the employer. There are two broad theories of vicarious liability. First, respondeat superior imposes liability for employee torts committed within the scope of employment. From the perspective of the employer, this doctrine imposes strict liability because employer precautions are irrelevant. It doesn't matter how carefully the employee, employer instructs and trains employees. It doesn't matter how closely the employer monitors their activities. Liability follows whenever a court finds that an employee has committed a tort in the scope of employment. An alternative approach imposes liability for negligent hiring, supervision, or retention. And judges often refer to this negligence theory as direct liability. They seem to believe that it's imposed directly for corporate acts, uh, rather than vicariously for an agent's wrongdoing. But this view is profoundly misleading. 
In fact, liability for negligent hiring, supervision, or retention requires managers to act negligently in the scope of their supervisory duties. For example, they must be negligent in screening applicants or training, supervising, and monitoring employees, or in deciding whether to fire or retain them. The employer is then held strictly liable for this managerial negligence. It doesn't matter how carefully the uh, company trains these managers, or whether corporate policy includes every possible reasonable precaution. Liability follows whenever managers act negligently in the scope of their employment, and that negligence allows another employee to commit a tort. For example, suppose that a private school um, headmaster or principal mistakenly fails to discover that a newly hired teacher has a long history of sexually abusing students. When that teacher assaults another student at the school, the school will be held liable for negligent hiring. In essence, this approach extends the principle of respondeat superior to managerial negligence. Thus, these two theories of vicarious liability have a very similar structure. They both impose a form of strict liability on the employer, in one case for the employee's tort, and in the other for managerial negligence that makes the employee's tort possible. We also need to know more precisely what facts establish liability under these two legal theories. As I've already mentioned, respondeat superior liability turns on finding that the employee acted within the scope of employment. The traditional formulation of this test for liability turns on three factors. The first, the time and place of the tortious conduct. For example, did it occur during working hours and in, in some place sufficiently connected with the uh, employment? Courts also ask what the employee was doing at the time. Did the tort happen while the employee was performing his job duties? Finally, and most controversially, the traditional formulation of scope of employment imposes a subjective business purpose test. Under this traditional approach, the employer subject must subjectively intend to serve the employer's purpose. Thus, for example, a department store was held liable when its security guard falsely imprisoned customers suspected of shoplifting. Even though the means were illegal, the employee's purpose was to prevent theft. And that subjective intent satisfied the business purpose test. Most jurisdictions, however, have abandoned the traditional motive-based subjective business purpose requirement. Both of the alternatives that I'll describe now expand vicarious liability. Under the most widely accepted approach, an assault occurs within the scope of employment if it arises out of a job-related conflict. For example, in Lange against Nabisco, a cookie salesman was uh, viciously attacked and severely injured a store owner. Uh, after the two had argued about the allocation of shelf space within the store. Who knew that uh, cookie sales was uh, such a cutthroat industry, a rough business? The court held Nabisco vicariously liable because there was a sufficient causal connection between the assault and the original business dispute over shelf space. 
it was irrelevant to the court's decision whether the employee beat up the store owner to help Nabisco get more shelf space. That would have been a subjective business purpose. Um, or simply because he had become enraged, which was at least arguably a purely personal motive. An even more dramatic example of the same reasoning is the court's ruling in Lyon against Carey. In this case, a delivery company argued, uh, sorry, a delivery company employee argued with a customer about accepting a check as payment for a mattress. When the female customer refused to pay cash, the delivery man attacked her with a knife and raped her. On the court's analysis, the delivery company was vicariously liable because the assault arose out of a job-related conflict over the means of payment. Most jurisdictions now accept this idea. An unbroken causal chain from a job-related conflict to an assault is sufficient to impose vicarious liability on the employer. A less widely accepted approach bases vicarious liability on job-created access or authority. Consider again the facts of Lyon against Carey. Suppose that there had been no argument about accepting a check as payment for the mattress. On this variation of the facts, no job-related controversy provoked the attack. Thus, the employer would escape responsibility under the Lyon court's reasoning. In a number of jurisdictions, however, a different rationale would support vicarious liability on these facts. The delivery man showed the mattress sales receipt in order to gain access to the customer's apartment. Even the Lyon court seemed to recognize the potential significance of this fact. The court's opinion refers five times to the sales receipt, which which it calls a badge of employment. Despite calling attention to the fact, this fact, the court's decision to impose liability rested exclusively on the job-related conflict over payment. Other courts, however, have taken the next step on similar facts. They have held employers vicariously liable for assaults by building managers, ambulance attendants, nursing home workers, cable TV repairmen, and the like. According to this approach, the job itself provides access to potential victims, and thus these assaults are a foreseeable risk for which employers should be responsible. A related argument has also been successful in a California case called Mary M, involving a rape by an on-duty police officer. The officer used his job-created authority, quite literally his badge of employment, to stop the victim and take her to her house and rape her. Once again, the court reasoned that this misuse of authority was a foreseeable risk for which the police department should be responsible. We'll return shortly to evaluate these extensions of the scope of employment. But first, I should explain very briefly the test for negligent hiring, supervision, and retention. In Lyon against Carey, the mattress delivery case, the court considered and rejected this theory. <clears throat> they said, the evidence will not support a finding that Pepline knew or should have known that Carey had any proclivity or history more pronounced than that of any other 19-year-old boy 
for assaults, sexual or otherwise, which would make Pepline liable because of a knowledge of a dangerous propensity. This quotation perfectly captures the essence of negligent hiring, supervision, and retention claims. Negligence liability requires that the employer either had actual notice of a dangerous propensity and failed to take precautions to prevent harm, or did too little to investigate a potentially risky situation, that is, the employer should have known. For example, a grocery store was held liable in Bryant against Lavigny when its manager assaulted a customer's child in the store parking lot. The manager had previously thrown a milk crate at a co-employee and later broke his son's collar collarbone by throwing him on, the bed, on a bed. The court held that actual notice about this prior violent conduct justified a finding that the store was negligent in retaining this manager, and that the store's negligence allowed the manager to injure Ferris Bryant by throwing him on his mother's car. Claims for negligent hiring, supervision, and retention help plaintiffs in two important ways. First, they allow liability to reach beyond the scope of employment. Suppose, for example, that the manager's assault in Bryant against Lavigny didn't involve a subjective business purpose, or arise out of a job-related conflict, or result from job-created access or authority. Still, the grocery store could be held liable for negligent retention. Second, by adding allegations of recklessness, the plaintiff can seek punitive damages. With the basic elements of vicarious liability doctrine in place, we can turn now to the normative justifications for those rules. Here, we'll explore the important norm of cost internalization. But a threshold question is why we need vicarious liability at all. The tortfeasor is always personally liable for his wrongdoing. So why isn't this individual or personal liability sufficient? Notice that many jobs potentially expose employees to a risk of tort liability. It seems doubtful that workers would simply accept that risk as the price of taking a job. In order to attract a willing workforce, employers would have to indemnify their employees against work-related tort liability. So it seems that perhaps we don't need vicarious liability. Employers will pay for employee torts even in a regime of purely personal liability. But this happy story ignores an important fact. Most workers don't have enough assets to cover the large dollar losses of business torts. And after committing egregious intentional torts, they often end up incarcerated. They are, in effect, judgment-proof. Judges get this point. In the cases we've already discussed, for example, they say that without vicarious liability, it will be always more profitable to conduct business vicariously. And that purely personal liability gives employers an incentive to delegate, now a phrase I particularly like, to persons pecuniarily irresponsible, the care of large factories, of extensive mines, 
of ships at sea, or of railroad trains on land. With judgment-proof agents, tort liability just disappears. And these serious harms become an unwelcome externality of the employer's business activity. It's also entirely possible that purely personal liability would distort the employer's choice of agents in favor of those who are judgment-proof. In fact, employees in liability-prone occupations would have an incentive to divest assets by, for example, putting uh, their assets in the name of a spouse or other family members. Tort victims then often would end up with no compensation. So it appears that we need to impose vicarious liability after all. Which brings us at last to the influence of the cost internalization norm. Few legal rules are more intuitively appealing than the idea that employers ought to internalize the cost of employee torts. This quote from Prosser and Keaton identifies a version of the cost internalization norm as the foundation of modern vicarious liability law. The appeal of this argument rests on undisputed facts about employment. Employers benefit from the work their employees do. They select and train and supervise those employees. Individual employees rarely have the financial resources to pay for the injuries that they cause. In contrast, employers have comparatively deep pockets. And they can easily obtain commercial liability insurance if they don't want to self-insure these losses. Moreover, the unwitting victims of employee torts have few realistic opportunities to prevent these losses. No case has done more to advance this view of vicarious liability than Ira S. Bushy against the United States. The colorful story of this case will be familiar to many of you. A seaman named Lane returned to his Coast Guard ship laid up in dry dock after a stint of shore leave. During that leave, Lane had, in Judge Friendly's memorable phrase, sought solace for solitude in copious resort to the bottle. Drunk out of his mind, he turned some valves on the dry dock. As water poured in on one side, the ship soon fell over and damaged the dry dock. Remarkably, no one was injured. The court concluded that the government ought to pay for the harm Lane had caused. So what does Bushy have to say about the scope of employment? For what should an employer be held responsible? According to Judge Friendly, they should bear all risks characteristic of the business, accidents characteristic of their activities, risks inherent in the working environment, and the harm likely to flow from their long-run activity in spite of all reasonable precautions on the employer's part. We can extract two unifying themes from these quotes. Judge Friendly's opinion relies on a broad notion of causation in the phrase harm likely to flow and the concept of foreseeability in the terms characteristic and inherent to the business. This formulation of scope of employment could be incredibly expansive. 
almost everything is both caused and foreseeable at some level of generality or abstraction. Employers potentially could be liable for any and all employee torts. We can call this approach enterprise liability. It signals an expansive commitment to internalize the cost of employee torts to the business enterprise. Viewed in this light, enterprise liability is a considerable challenge to the traditional scope of employment test. And Bushy has been extremely influential. This way of talking about employee torts in terms of causation and foreseeability has been widely imitated. But these are legal conclusions rather than a workable test for liability. So we must look to the factual distinctions drawn in individual cases to understand what is really going on. As we'll soon see, courts don't abandon the traditional limits on vicarious liability so easily. Indeed, the Bushy opinion itself includes some striking echoes of the old order. Judge Friendly offers three examples of employee conduct that would fall, as he puts it, on the other side of the line for which employer, the employer would not be liable. He would find no liability for torching the bar where Lane was getting drunk. Similarly, there would be no liability if Lane caused an accident on his way back to the dry dock. And finally, the employer would escape liability if Lane recognized the shipyard's security guard as his wife's lover and shot him in retaliation. Never let it be said that employment cases are not colorful. Under the broadest view of enterprise liability, all three of these uh, injuries could be both caused by the employment and foreseeable by the employer. After all, it's perfectly foreseeable that seamen on shore leave will get drunk and cause mayhem in their port of call. Perhaps not surprisingly, each of these stories implicates traditional limits on the scope of employment. The first two rely on time and place and on employee job duties. These events occurred outside the employer's premises and while the seaman was off duty. The third story imposes a motive test by distinguishing business from personal motives. Thus, even the Bushy decision itself seems to embrace some traditional uh, principles of respondeat superior li liability. Simplifying just a bit, we can identify two competing narratives in vicarious liability decisions. Bushy uses an expansive rhetoric of cost internalization, causation, and foreseeability. But that case also embraces a far more traditional counter-narrative that seeks to limit vicarious liability for employee torts. Courts fear that burdening employers with too much liability will destroy jobs and impede economic growth. This tension between expansive and restrictive visions of vicarious liability has produced a broad spectrum of doctrinal approaches. Even today, we see everything from jurisdictions that still apply and require the traditional subjective business purpose test to decisions that fully embrace the broad concept of enterprise liability. 
I too would like to challenge the broad cost internalization norm, but my critique will focus on job matching and employee churning. To motivate this discussion, let's think about the incentives that vicarious liability creates for employers. Prosser and Keaton emphasized employers' ability to bear accident costs and pass them along to, cons to uh, consumers. But businesses may not be so eager to assume these burdens. They can reduce their labor costs by minimizing rather than simply accepting the cost of employee torts. Imagine, for example, that a supervisor sees a warehouse worker behaving recklessly. Perhaps the worker has ignored repeated warnings and continued to use unsafe methods to remove heavy boxes from overhead shelving. Suppose also that outside contractors frequently pass through the warehouse to deliver goods and repair equipment. Thus, the employer faces not only workers' compensation claims for injuries to coworkers, but also potential tort liability to third parties. Our employer must decide whether to terminate or retain this troublesome worker. We need to assess the value of firing as a precaution. Let's start with the employer's own private costs and benefits. What does the employer stand to gain? Terminating this careless worker saves the cost of potential future vicarious liability. The employer gets rid of a risky employee and hires someone new. The company exchanges the near certainty of continued bad conduct for the chance to hire someone better and less prone to harm. Obviously, the main private cost of discharge is what it costs to recruit and train a replacement employee. Any termination also creates some risk of a wrongful discharge claim. However, an employer worried about this risk can often negotiate a small severance payment and a neutral reference in return for a blanket release of all claims. On balance, many employers will see an easy calculation here favoring termination. So now let's compare the social benefits and costs of discharge. What exactly are we trying to accomplish by imposing liability? I think our goal is to avoid social harm at the lowest possible cost. We derive a social benefit from termination if it reduces the risk of harm to third parties. In this case, we'd like to prevent this reckless employee from causing future warehouse injuries. On the cost side of the equation, we must consider not just the original employer's cost of firing and replacing this employee. Instead, the social cost equals the total cost of employee turnover among all employers. Our fired worker will undoubtedly file job applications at other companies, and these employers will incur the cost of screening his application. Once hired, he'll need at least some training in his new workplace. Perhaps it comes as no surprise that the private and social costs and benefits of termination aren't precisely aligned. But the potential problem goes far deeper than this initial comparison suggests. 
It's well known that prospective employers have trouble learning why applicants have left their former jobs. Employment references are often uninformative. Indeed, most employers follow a policy of simply confirming job titles and dates of service. And surveys of HR managers reveal that former employers are least likely to share important negative information about fired workers. Without a candid employment reference, prospective employers are very unlikely to learn about our workers' recklessness. And even if information were more readily available, it takes only one inattentive reference checker to allow a problematic employee to slip through the pre-employment screening process. Thus, our discharged employee is likely to find a similar job with another employer. As a result, his new employer will bear the liability costs that his former employer saved. And thus, we face the same risk of harm. The new employer's loss exactly offsets the original employer's gain. Unfortunately, society as a whole is no better off after the termination. Remember, though, that employee turnover is expensive. Employers still incur all the costs of recruitment, screening, and training. But now these costs are wasted because we haven't reduced the social risk of harm. The situation is, in fact, even worse because the new employee doesn't know any, sorry, the new employer doesn't know anything about this worker's dangerous propensity to be reckless in the warehouse. The process of termination and rehiring has caused us to lose information about this risk. As a result, the new employer won't take any special precautions to prevent this worker from causing harm. Thus, employee turnover may perversely increase the risk uh, that this worker poses to society. I've dubbed this inefficient job turnover employee churning. It's analogous to unproductively churning investment accounts. <clears throat> Only much worse because firing also robs us of valuable information about risk. It follows that employment termination may be an inefficient precaution that causes rather than prevents social harm. In a minute, we'll explore how this conclusion requires us to rethink our approach to vicarious liability law. But first, there are two qualifications of the churning story that may help us understand key features of the doctrine. I need to introduce a distinction here between high risk and normal risk jobs. Suppose, for example, that someone with a serious drinking problem works as a long haul truck driver, a train engineer, a bus driver, or an airline pilot. Or imagine a serial child abuser working in a daycare center or a middle school. In each of these high risk situations, the worker's dangerous propensity to report for work inebriated or to perpetrate sexual assaults interacts with the characteristics of the job to create a serious risk of tragic social harms. In contrast, we can picture our drunken employee working as a file clerk, or perhaps 
as a law professor. <laughs> it may be harder to find some records, or law students may suffer some unexpected confusion in the classroom. I promise not. In these normal risk scenarios, the employee is undoubtedly less productive than others. But there's no unusual risk of social harm. Let's return now to our evaluation of discharge as a precaution. Discharging an undesirable employee from a high-risk job, that is one in which the employee's propensity, uh, particular propensities uh, interact with the and create an unusual risk of harm, uh, may improve the match between the worker and his job. So long as a discharged employee moves to a normal risk job, that is one with no unusual risk of harm. For example, moving a drunken bus driver or heavy equipment operator uh, uh, to an office job uh, dramatically reduces the risks of social harm. In addition to these effects on job matching, it's also possible that the threat of termination could create desirable incentive effects for employees. In short, the threat of discharge may deter bad conduct. Frankly, I'm skeptical about the deterrent effects of a discharge in situations like these. Most workers probably have little control over their dangerous propensities. I seriously doubt that recklessness, drunkenness, or a propensity towards violence will be very responsive to deterrent incentives. And if dis discharged employees can find a new job without undue delay, then termination imposes only a comparatively modest penalty for this risky conduct. In contrast, I think we can under best understand important features of vicarious liability doctrine as efforts to keep dangerous workers out of high-risk jobs. I'll turn now to evaluate existing doctrine. Current law includes both features that promote better job matching and rules that create perverse incentives for employee churning. At the root of uh, most problems is court's naive confidence that firing risky employees always reduces the risk of social harm. I spoke earlier about the contrast between high risk and normal risk jobs. This distinction plays an important role in shaping both respondeat superior and negligence doctrine. As we've seen, a number of jurisdictions expand the scope of employment test for high-risk jobs. They hold that job-created access or authority creates a special risk for which employers must be held responsible. Conversely, the same tortious, tortious conduct would fall outside the scope of employment for a worker in a normal risk job. Negligent hiring cases also draw clear distinctions between high-risk jobs, which require special investigative measures to avoid liability, and more ordinary jobs for which employers need not take any special precautions. And almost all negligent, negligent retention cases that impose liability involve situations that we would classify or describe as high risk. Thus, courts most readily hold employers liable when a bad interaction between the nature of the job and the employee's dangerous propensity causes harm.
for example, a pedophile at a daycare center. In these cases, special precautions are required. The analysis of job matching confirms the wisdom of these efforts to focus vicarious liability on high-risk employment. Employees, employers' greater exposure to liability gives them a strong incentive to take extra precautions. In turn, those precautions probably discourage bad workers from seeking these high-risk positions and lower the risk that a bad employee will get one of these high-risk jobs. It's far easier for them to get a job in an occupation that doesn't require such intensive screening. Perhaps a more surprising implication of my analysis is that applying vicarious liability to normal risk jobs potentially creates a perverse incentive for employee churning. Employers understandably use their private information about risky workers to avoid liability. But any liability exposure at all can create a perverse incentive to, to discharge. So both respondeat superior and negligence can cause employee churning. Of course, my claim is not that we should eliminate vicarious liability for normal risk jobs. Instead, I mean to suggest that existing law has a tendency to overvalue the precaution of discharge. Unfortunately, courts often assume that employment termination eliminates the threat posed by risky employees. But the analysis of employee churning shows that firing an undesirable employee may make matters worse rather than better. The many cases I've read seem to ignore this possibility. Finally, the danger of employee churning also suggests the potential advantages of rehabilitating workers through internal discipline and reassignment rather than firing them. But existing case law strongly encourages employers to terminate employees who misbehave. It's almost always safest to discharge. Negligence law creates a particular risk of liability when an employer attempts to rehabilitate a problem employee. A potent form of hindsight bias affects judicial judgments about appropriate precautions. The employer of our reckless warehouse worker, for example, might reasonably believe that another round of counseling and additional internal discipline will persuade him finally to be more careful in the future. But if those efforts prove unsuccessful, a court often will be presented with a tort claim in which the employer knew about prior transgressions. It is extremely easy to view tragic events as confirmation that the employer's original decision was misguided. Liability for negligent retention and an award of punitive damages will often follow. I conclude now with some very tentative suggestions for reform. My ideas flow directly from the points I've already made about existing doctrine. First, we should encourage courts to continue and expand their efforts to focus liability on high-risk employment. More jurisdictions should embrace the idea that job-created access or authority expands the scope of employment. Courts should abandon the peculiar focus on job-related conflicts 
and ask instead whether the job presents a high risk or a normal risk of social harm from the type of employee conduct that has caused the injury. We should also recognize and celebrate the existing focus of negligence law on high-risk situations. Second, courts should become aware that firing risky employees is not a panacea. For example, the danger of churning suggests that an employer's conscientious efforts to rehabilitate and reassign problem employees should not expose them to negligence liability. On the other hand, hiring or retaining a suspected rapist as a cable television repairman surely warrants punitive damages. Unfortunately, current jury instructions offer no guidance on this point, and appellate courts have uh, no clear framework within which to uh, analyze this issue. Finally, we should reconsider the influence of the cost internalization norm. No one can deny that it's intuitively appealing to hold employers responsible for their employees' torts. It just makes sense that these costs should be internalized to the business enterprise that profits from this activity. But my focus on job matching and the potential incentives for employee churning suggests the value of a new perspective. A key question is whether concerns about the effects of vicarious liability can justify leaving some victims uncompensated? The answer is that we do this routinely when we say that certain employee conduct is outside the scope of employment. If compensation were our highest and only goal, we would be willing to require deep-pocketed employers to pay for any and all employee torts in order to ensure that employees, sorry, that victims receive compensation. A trickier problem, however, is precisely how incentive concerns ought to influence the contours of vicarious liability. My answer is that the law already incorporates some of these concerns, and it could be more sophisticated about doing so if we made the trade-offs clearer for courts and legislators. I hope to do exactly that in the article that will grow out of this lecture. And I thank you for your interest in the subject, and I'd welcome your comments and questions. Any, any questions at all? I'd be more than happy to take them. I know the hour is late, and your families and homes are calling, but I'd be more than happy to answer your question. George Geis. Thank you very much. I thought that part of the goal here uh, is not only to take the ex-post response to the law, but also to impose the ex-ante official precautions so that we're going to incentivize the farmers to, uh, for example, put blocks on the valve or put parentalizers in DPS, uh, you know, in trucks or airlines or whatever. So we're not only responding to the Yeah, I think that the 
ex-ante precautions that you're describing can fit quite comfortably into the analysis that I have here. Um, with respect to the uh, respondeat superior liability, um, it's a form of strict liability. The employer presumably will take precautions, um, and some of those precautions may actually entail the sort of ex-ante steps that you're describing. Um, the negligence liability, I think, though, is probably more directly focused on that. So um, although it's nominally called negligent hiring, supervision, and retention, um, negligence can take pretty much any form that causes an employee tort uh, to, to occur. And so um, those duties would fit quite nicely with the, and, and support and provide encouragement for the kind of precautions that you're describing. Um, so I don't think there's any inherent con uh, tension or, or conflict. And in fact, uh, some of the um, uh, conduct that I've been describing, so for example, the screening of, careful screening of uh, employees in high-risk occupations, um, that's a, a, an ex-ante precaution that um, the law is quite clearly designed to promote right now. Um, if you look at negligent hiring liability, uh, it's really very difficult to find a case that doesn't involve what we would describe as high-risk employment. I, 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 don't, I can't think of any case that doesn't, doesn't involve that. So, so I, I would embrace that as, as a part of the object here. Anybody else? Yeah, Kim. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, this paper, it really comes full circle for me because the first article that I wrote when I became a faculty member here was called Notice Liability in Employment Discrimination Law, and it was about those employer liability rules for federal employment discrimination statutes. And um, the theme of the article was basically to say that the um, courts in those areas had a sort of cavalier idea that um, that there was a sort of unequivocal lesson to be taken from the common law of vicarious liability. You could just look to common law of vicarious liability and map it on to employment discrimination law. Um, and they talked as though there was no ambiguity. And so my focus really was on pointing out that there's this incredible diversity, that range of options that I described really exists in, in the common law. And the common law doesn't speak unequivocally. Uh, it speaks very equivocally. So, um, so I think, so, so that point actually still stands. Um, it is true that uh, on the whole, I would say, well, I don't know, that's interesting. It depends on who's deciding, right? I mean, this is fundamentally a political um, question about how extensive uh, employer liability ought to be in the employment discrimination context. And so um, we see uh, Congress pushing in the direction often of greater employer liability, and then you see the Supreme Court um, sometimes cutting back. So I guess I would say that there is somewhat similar ebb and flow um, in those decisions that we see in the common law. Um, and I, I guess my plea would be for it to be more transparent, for it to be, for, for everyone involved to be more conscious of um, the details of what, what they're doing and, and, and not to um, 
naively rely or, or pretend to rely on um, supposed assumptions from, from existing law. So, yeah, Rich? Yes. That's a great question, um, and I think probably as I develop this, I'm going to need to um, think about the possible application or the um, uh, effect of hindsight bias in that context as well. Um, it is certainly a challenge to um, divide between high-risk and normal-risk uh, jobs. Um, the key to high-risk is some interaction between characteristics of the job and propensities to engage in harm, so there's at least some purchase there. Um, but, uh, but, but your point is, is well taken. Um, I guess, uh, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, th I guess at, at this point what I'd say is um, the negligence cases, negligent hiring, supervision, and retention cases do identify what in my mind strike me as situations like those and distinguish them from circumstances in which admittedly it's horribly bad conduct, right? A really awful thing has happened. Someone has been murdered, for example. There's a very famous case in which a um, warehouse, I think he was a warehouse worker, someone who worked in a manufacturing plant, you know, this, this happens actually regretfully often, um, you know, came back to the plant and, and murdered some coworkers. Um, and the question was uh, whether that should lead to liability or not. And, and the court answered no, and the reason that the court gave was more or less that this could have happened anywhere, basically. That there was nothing about this workplace that exposed workers to a particular risk or that um, gave this um, perpetrator uh, access or, or um, made the victims more vulnerable than they were otherwise. So, uh, and, and by the way, the employer hadn't, there were no obvious steps that the employer could have taken um, in light of what they knew. Um, so I guess I'm somewhat optimistic that, that, um, that courts can, can uh, assess that issue, can distinguish. And I guess the last thing I'll say about it is to suggest that um, each of these cases can give rise to category, categorical reasoning, right? So access and authority that I've described, there's a sort of large body of cases that are closely analogous to those. And so to the extent that we're using that kind of analogic reasoning, um, I think it puts some constraint on, on the doctrine. Uh, last question? No more questions. I would say we're done. No more questions. We're Thank done. Thank you, Terrific.